Genesis 3, 8 to 24. I'm reading from the NIV. Actually, if it's all right, I know you've been up and down a little bit, but I'd really like to honour Scripture today. So can we stand as we read this? Just as a sign of, you know, the fact that this came through unbelievable means to be able to get to us. Let's read. Uh, Verse 8 onwards. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed to you above all livestock and all wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which they had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. Please have a seat. Let me thank you so much for your word. And, uh, and what it means to us. Lord, through miraculous means, this has been passed down to us. From spoken language to spoken language. Lord, to the invention of the printing press, we are just so grateful that it's come to us in this form and that we can understand it and take it, use it to teach us, use it for right living, to show us the path of righteous living. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Um, I'm going to speak to you today about uh, gender in the Bible. I'm going to talk about the status of women, relates to women in the church. So we're in a pretty contentious area here. Um, the comment was made when we had a Baptist, Aaron. 
remember she came and day and she talked about basically how we live age differently and communicate at age. And um comment was what are we doing having a woman preacher here? Why haven't we had any teaching about this and all of that? So that's what I'm doing. I'm doing the women preaching thing. Always good to have a sound guy. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's what I'm here to do today. Um, I'm aware that a number of people will probably be a little bit unhappy with what I'm about to say today because uh, my view is different from, I guess, a conservative evangelical view on the whole. Um, but I've got good reason for saying it. And I do rejoice, actually, that at least those people who would oppose the position I'm about to outline themselves are informed by Scripture. I'm really happy about that. So if you want to disagree with me and you've got a scriptural reason to do so, then by all means, go ahead. That's what I want. I'm actually all for the Scripture. Um and for speaking around the scripture. Uh, at the end of what I'm going to say today, or after the service, we're going to have a opportunity where I'll answer any other questions because this is a complex question with lots of different um, biblical verses and commentaries and all kinds of things, and uh, people might have some um, questions that they want to put to me. And in the future, um, if you want to put your hand up for a sermon... Um, to represent a different view to what I'm about to say, then you're very welcome to do that too. Um, I'm sure Damo will be thrilled to not have to preach another sermon. So, um, yeah, so all of that is possible, and this is by no means the uh, final word on the subject. This is my view, really. Um, I think most of the elders would probably support this view, but I'd, but they don't even know either because I haven't said it yet. So, we'll see. Okay. With that preamble. Um, basically, what I want to suggest to you is that the gospel is essentially about God saving humanity from the curse of the disobedience to God and to set us free to live in the glorious liberty of the children of God and to live free from the bondage of sin and shame and guilt and death. So essentially the gospel, the way I look at it, is actually about liberation. We had that song earlier um, about freedom, right? The freedom of the children of God, the freedom of the Spirit, all of that. And to use verses of Scripture to claim that the subjection of women or the hierarchy of men over women is God's desire and part of the natural order for me, is to fundamentally miss the point. Jesus is the great liberator, spiritually, materially, socially, and individually. Paul, who wrote a third of the New Testament, is the apostle of the free spirit. That's the name of a book, actually, written by F.F. F. Bruce on that subject, um, where he basically talks about Paul coming from a position of being a Pharisee, and dominated by law, 
to coming to Jesus and being dominated by grace and being led by the Spirit. In fact, um, the more I thought about Paul, one of the things that really strikes me about him is that he's the person or the, the apostle who changes his mind. Paul's mind changes about everything. And Jesus himself is seen, particularly in the New Testament, as a liberating figure. So, um, because of that, because of this movement towards freedom, I think to kind of use a verse to say, well, um, the woman's place in the church is to sit down and be quiet and the men should run the show, is, to me, completely antithetical to the whole purpose of the gospel. That's what I think. So I'm going to talk to you largely today about big ideas that run through scripture rather than try and get bogged down in individual scriptures and the what this word or that word does or does not mean because the central passage, the one from um, 2 Timothy, uh, sorry, 1 Timothy 2 chapter, uh, verses 8 to 15 uh, actually is a highly contentious passage. I've read, I think, about six or seven different commentaries, all that say completely different things about it from all different points of view. So, um, that's what we're doing today, and now I'm about to start on that. Okay. Jesus in, is in, firstly, the salvation business more than the social hierarchy business. Um, you get this from passages like um, John 1, where... He says, find John. he says this, uh, or John says this on behalf of Jesus, says, um, There was a true light which was coming into the world, which enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But to as many who did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So here what it's saying is our position as, as children of God is actually a God thing rather than a human thing and is not actually to do with the will of man, but something that God is doing in us. As you go through to take one gospel, the gospel of John, you get to um, chapter 2 and you get to the wedding in Cana. In the wedding in Cana, uh, Mary says to Jesus, they've got no wine. So she's worried about the wedding feast. They run out of wine. This is a major problem. And Jesus says to her, Woman, woman, what have I to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he says to do. And now they were, uh, there were six stone water pots 
left for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with, uh, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. Then he said, draw down some, um, draw some now and take it to the head waiter. They took it to him, and then the head waiter tasted the water and become wine, and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water did know. Um, and the head waiter called to the bridegroom and said, everyone serves uh, the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, uh, then that which is poorer, but you have kept the good wine to last. Now, the point here is that Mary may be concerned about the wedding, but Jesus actually isn't concerned about the wedding at all. Jesus is concerned about the kingdom and announcing himself as Messiah by doing a miracle. Now, this is just an example of humans having an idea of what needs to be done and God doing something which is completely beyond human understanding, which is actually to announce himself as the Messiah and to start ushering in the kingdom of God. So the point is that God's purposes are not our purposes, basically. You go on through the Gospel of John and you get to um, John 4 where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman by the well. And this was considered a, a very unusual thing for a, a preacher to do because, well, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans and men generally didn't talk to women. So, for all those reasons, what Jesus does here is actually quite revolutionary. He engages with the woman, he talks to her, he um, explains to her about the nature of worship, and he declares that he is the, the Messiah, the one who is to come. He tells her things about her life. She goes off, she tells all the people in the uh, local village, and they come and they hear and, and they all believe, and they all turn to Jesus. But the point is that Jesus has a lot of engagement with women. That's the, the point that I'm trying to make. Women are not seen as um, irrelevant in the kingdom of God at all. And Jesus makes that point, and makes it very um, pointedly, I think, in these passages. So, especially in relation to um, verses uh, yeah, 22, 24, Jesus says something like this, You worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know, for salvation comes from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, where the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So there you have it. Um, Jesus' idea of worship is quite different to the woman's idea of worship. And... Generally, the purposes of God are quite different to what we expect or we want or we think we need. God just does different things. Now, I don't think that Jesus uh, seems to view gender um, distinctions and gender hierarchy as very important at all. Our society thinks it's important. Our society thinks issues of Race, 
class and gender are really important. I was an English lit teacher for 20 odd years and you know what I taught? Class, race and gender. That's what you look at. And that has infiltrated our whole society so that we're worried now about racism. Is the um, former English cricket captain Michael Vaughan racist for saying to the Pakistani cricketers at Yorkshire, we've got too many of you lot, we're going to have to do something about it. Or um, other sort of statements like that that have derailed particularly um, commentators and and uh, news readers and all things. If they're seen as racist, that's terrible. In the area of class, we, we think that it's wrong that rich people should be given preference over poor people. Poor people have needs, rich people have needs. We, we want to be fair, we want to be equitable. In the area of gender, um, women today are demanding more equality. They want equality in wages. They want equality of opportunity. They want equality in terms of um, working. They want to be free to have a family and to work, things like that. So the point is that those three issues, gender, race, class, are really important in the modern world. And for Jesus, they're important too, in, in a sense, in the negative sense. He thinks racism's bad. He thinks um, we should be looking after the poor. He thinks, I think, that he believes that women should be set free to use their gifts. That's what I think he's on about. Um, let's have a look at a passage that shows this. Uh, if you'd like to turn to Matthew uh, 22. In Matthew 22, he talks to some Sadducees. And you can see their um, focus is all upon trying to trick Jesus by asking a question that they think he's going to get stuck on. And they say this in Matthew 22, verse 23. On that day, some Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies and having no children, his brother or next of kin shall marry his wife and raise an offspring to his brother. Now, there were seven brothers with us, um, and the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So also with the second, and the third down to the seventh, and last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. They think they've nailed it. This is a big problem. We've got seven wives, uh, seven husbands, and only one wife. What are we going to do in heaven? Huh? Okay. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, um, have you not read that which is spoken by God, saying, I am um, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And then the multitudes were all very happy at that. They thought that was 
tremendous. Now, the point is that if in heaven there's no marriage, then it seems that in heaven gender distinctions aren't nearly as important as they are to us in our lives. So what I'm saying is, in terms of the whole course of scripture, we're moving towards a race, equality of races, equality of provision, and equality between the sexes. I think that's the direction. I think, in fact, that because the spirit of God is alive in the world, I think that in some ways, changes that are in the world are actually outstripping those in the church. In the church, we've hung on pretty tenaciously to the idea of male hierarchy and male headship and male leadership. And we get pretty nervous if we start suggesting things like, oh, we're going to have a female preacher or we're going to have, God forbid, a female pastor. Imagine that. Um, But I don't think it's such a big deal, actually. And I don't think God thinks it's such a big deal. I think conservative evangelicals think it's a big deal. And I think men with a vested interest in power and authority think it's a big deal. And I think feminists who don't like it think it's a big deal. But I don't think God thinks it's a big deal. I think God just wants us to be free, happy people, actually. And to use the gifts of men and women as much as we can, for the glory of God. Because God's agenda is not our agenda. God's agenda is about saving people. God's agenda is about setting people free. That's what God's agenda is. So, moving on then. Um, There are a whole stack of verses, not a whole stack actually, there's a few, few verses that Paul is credit in which Paul is credited um, by conservative um, Christians and is blamed by feminists for supporting pac- uh, patriarchy. They think that Paul is a highly patriarchal person who is misogynist and hates women, and because of that, he wants women to be in subjection to men. That's basically what the feminists would say um, on the part of the. Conservatives, they rejoice and say it's a really good thing for men to have power and control things and for women to be quiet and put on their hats and shut up. I was actually in a church like that and um, it was actually a lot of fun for me. As a young bloke, I I got to develop skills. Um, The women did all put on their hats and in fact... If you were in that church today, all you women with uncovered heads, you would all have hats on and your kids, if they were girl children, they would have scarves on and you wouldn't get to say anything. You wouldn't get to suggest a song. You wouldn't get to lead worship. You wouldn't get to um, pray. You wouldn't get to do anything. You could sing. You were allowed to sing in the old Brethren church and, um, and the women did. But the rest of the time, they just sat down and shut up, basically. But they they did other things which were really good, I have to say. And I really enjoyed that church. And so I'm not coming to you from a position of 
being highly influenced by feminists at university or something, why I think this, I'm coming from a, the opposite. I'm coming from a highly conservative position in which there were certainly no women elders. That's not to say the women didn't have power in the church. I won't really go into the way in which they had power, nor is it to say that the women were stupid because the women actually were all part of these KYB groups. Know your Bible. I'll tell you what, those girls knew the Bible inside out. <laughs> you couldn't slide anything past them and that they would pick you up. They were hot. They were really good. But in any case, it was that kind of church. And as a, a man, I had um, lots of opportunities to speak, to get told off by the elders for the things I said, to be corrected, uh, to be encouraged to speak again, and to get better. So for me personally, it was a really good thing. I think Dorothy quite enjoyed it too. And uh, they were a, a good church and they were a faithful church. They didn't have a pastor. If you came to one of their services, you would come along and it was all supposed to be spirit-led. And that meant that all the men of the church had to come with a song, a prayer, a reading, or a mini-sermon, or something like that. That's how we used to have to prepare. So 6 o'clock in the morning, every Sunday, you're frantically doing Bible study because you didn't know if God, through his Spirit, was going to call on you to speak, and you had to be ready. And it was scary, actually. It was, yeah. But even though it was a Spirit-led service, and even though we didn't have a pastor or a service leader or anything like that, what I did notice after a while was that between 10.25 and 10.28, someone always asked for communion. So it's one of these things that you don't have a formal liturgy, but boy, you had a formal liturgy. It was just a different kind of liturgy, really. So um, that's my, my background and, and a highly influential um, thing in my life. However, um, well... That church, and it was a good church, they used to give hundreds of thousands of dollars to missionaries every year. Hundreds of thousands. Because they didn't have to employ a pastor. And they were really wealthy. Super wealthy. The second time we went there, they offered to buy us a new car because our old bombed out Falcon with yellow and purple panels on it just didn't cut it against their Mercedes and their Porsches and their everything else. They, they were going to invite us, buy us a new car. And I think we got uh, invited for about six months' lunches right then. And they were really great people, they were. But they no longer exist. That church doesn't exist. Very successful church. I led a youth group of 30 to 50 kids every week. Um, we were pumping. Yep, it's dead. One of the reasons it's dead is because they held on to a highly conservative position on women. And that wasn't that attractive to the women. And the women didn't like having, not all of them, particularly young women, didn't like having their, uh, having it to wear a hat. And I remember Del Davies, she had really long red hair. And I tell you what, in the morning service, that was all covered up. She had her hat on. But in the night service, the gospel service, which we only ever had if Jesus didn't come back. 
let me tell you. Every day we're told in the morning service, and we'll have a worship service uh, this evening, should the Lord tarry. So we all went off to lunch, wondering whether Jesus was going to come back or whether we're going to have the gospel service. I mean, either way worked for us, really. But uh, that's the way it was. And in that, in that evening service, Del would come, and she wouldn't have her hat on. Oh, no, not in the gospel service. She let those hair, that hair uh, run free, and even the angels were discombobulated and wearing sunglasses, I guess. I don't know. But the point is that that church doesn't even exist anymore. It was a good church, but now it's not a church. Okay. So, I've kind of moved from a, a position which endorsed patriarchy to a position which no longer endorses that completely at all. There's some things that I still hang on to. Male headship is one, actually. But my idea of headship is probably not your idea of headship. Because my idea of headship is more to do with taking responsibility for something rather than using power coercively. To give you an idea of that, if you ask me, what is my purpose as a husband? What's my purpose as a husband? This is my purpose. To set my wife free, to use the gifts God has given her for the glory of the kingdom of God. That's my whole purpose. Am I the head? Yes, I am. That's what I want. That's what she's got to do. She's got to use her gifts. Does she get to slack off and not uh, lead Bible studies or not study the Word of God or do things? No. She's got to study the Word of God. That's what I wanted to do. And she agrees to that. She submits to that. And she leads groups and she leads services and she does things like that. And she does so with my complete blessing. In fact, when she's doing it, I think, whew, I'm doing my job. That's what I think. So my idea of headship is about taking responsibility for my family and for my wife, but it's not necessarily telling my wife what to do so much as encouraging her to do it, particularly if I think it's from God. That's, that's my purpose. And I've got a fine wife, and she does all that stuff. And she does, at times, take positions of leadership in the service, as a pastoral assistant to the elders, in our finances. Ask me about my finances. i got no idea. I go to Dorothy, I say, I need 50 bucks to go and play golf. Give us 50 bucks. Okay, I get the 50 bucks, I go. That's it. I don't control our finances. I don't control the kitchen. I don't really have much control over all our kids. She does all that stuff. Um, she does all kinds of leadership things. But she's not the head of the house. But in certain areas, she leads. As I think it's appropriate for women who are gifted in a certain area to do. So I think it's terrific that Miriam should lead a worship team. I think it's terrific that Bev runs the craft. I think it's terrific that Cindy runs the Sunday school, Trudy and others. Can you see what I mean? Like, 
In our church already, we've got women in a whole stack of leadership positions. So for me, to suggest that a woman should never preach doesn't make any sense at all. If God's gifted her to preach, let her preach. That's what I'd say. Does that mean this church is likely to um, get a woman pastor as our next pastor? Can't imagine it. Really, I can't. But would I be open to it? Would I be opposed to that? Not necessarily. Particularly if she had a husband and her husband was happy for her to be the pastor. Um, If I felt that she was under the uh, authority of the elders. Yep, wouldn't worry me in the least, actually. Now, so I've changed my mind about patriarchy, particularly in the church. And I notice that Paul changes his mind. And he changes his mind all the time. We think of him as someone that writes Christian law for the way things are meant to be in the church. But this guy changes his mind completely. He starts off as virtually a Gestapo agent for the Sanhedrin, binding, breathing threats of murder against Christians and representing the Jewish law and Jewish orthodoxy. And in doing that, Amen. What he's doing is, thank you for that encouragement. Um, and what he's doing there is actually completely the opposite to what he does when he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road and changes completely as a person. So he goes from persecutor of the church to promoter of the church. Then, in different situations, he changes his mind. Because, and here's the thing, He's not run by letter or tradition. He's run by the Spirit of God. So, he goes through this whole thing. This is a classic in um, Acts 15, Council of Jerusalem. And he fights against Peter and he fights against James and all these guys and he's saying, Gentiles shouldn't have to get circumcised. Gentiles shouldn't have to obey Jewish law. We don't need circumcision. We don't need the Moazay. Um, tradition, because this is a new thing that God's doing. And we've been set free from that. And in fact, that's going to kill you, and only Jesus is going to set you free. That's, what he's, that's the big point he makes in to the uh, assembled council at Jerusalem. And they agree. They say, yep, same Lord, same faith, same baptism, same spirit. Yep, I can't see why Gentiles should be shut out of the you know, or have to become Jews to become Christians. No, that's, that's good, Paul. We're right behind you. Uh, the only thing is we don't want uh, you encouraging people to eat meat which is dedicated to idols, and we don't like things that are strangled in blood, and we want you to remember the Paul. Paul says, yeah, 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 fine, good. The next chapter, the start of the next chapter, you know what he does? He gets his offsider, Timothy, who is a Greek, and gets him circumcised. He's just fought this whole battle, this whole theological battle, which is a huge battle in the early church, to prove that Gentiles don't have to become Jews to become Christians. And then in the very next chapter, and it's literally the third verse, and he took Timothy and got him circumcised because basically Paul didn't want to have a hassle with all the Jews 
worrying about whether Timothy could go into synagogues and stuff like that. So as a matter of convenience, really, not out of a matter of principle, but as a matter of uh, practical convenience, he wants to take that issue, Timothy's circumcision, off the table, and so he gets him circumcised. Then he gets another helper, Titus. Does he circumcise him? No, he doesn't circumcise him. So there's no policy here. What there is is a man being led by the Spirit of God to make certain decisions which are going to be helpful for the promotion of the gospel. Because Paul's all about salvation. Paul wants to save people. He doesn't want to imprison people anymore. He wants to set people free, like Jesus. I could go into a whole stack of other ways in which Paul changed his mind, but I think you get the point. Moving on. I'm just watching the time here and it's getting late. Right. Paul is also about spiritual gifts. And whenever he mentions spiritual gifts, whether in Romans 12, verses 3 to 8, in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to 10, or in 1 Corinthians 14, 1 to 4, there's no talk of gender. None. He wants people to prophesy. At one point in his ministry, he meets the daughters of Philip. Philip's got four daughters. And they're prophetesses. They're female prophets. Right? And he wants prophecy. And so he, they're an example of former women prophets who get to be prophets. They're not just sitting down and being quiet. They've been prophets. They say what the truth is. He endorses that. He endorses spiritual gifts. He doesn't tie it to gender. He doesn't say, oh, if you're a man, then you can do these things, and if you're a woman, you can teach Sunday school. He doesn't do that. He just doesn't do it. There's no reference to gender in the area of spiritual gifts. And this is a, a big point, because... Are we going to be a church led by tradition or are we going to be a church led by the Spirit of God? It's a simple, are we going to be this? Are we going to be that? If we're going to be a church led by the Spirit of God, then you know what? A whole lot of um, presuppositions about the way things should be are going to go out the window because God's ways aren't our ways. God's got different ideas to us. And he's going to transform our minds. What does it even mean if Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, if Christians never change their mind? They have to change their mind. God's in the business of changing our mind. That's what he does. Going on. Uh, Jesus and Paul focus on liberation as an essential characteristic of salvation. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. From Jesus, or from Paul, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor um, free man, there is neither male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. I.e., there is no, no longer Jew nor Greek. There's no longer, race is not an issue. There is neither slave nor free man. Class is not an issue. There is neither male or female. Gender is not an issue. What matters is we're all one in Jesus. That's the big thing. I've already spoken about um, our church and the roles that women have and that we're quite happy for them to have. 
Um, in the Anglican Church, they've had a big debate that's gone on for about 30 years about whether they can have women ministers, and finally they've decided that they can. Uh, the brethren, well, I've already told you that story, but the brethren are dead in that sense. Presbyterians. Um, oh, I used to be a Presbyterian. In fact, I'm still a Presbyterian. You can't not be a Presbyterian if you're a Presbyterian elder. You're a Presbyterian elder for life. That's one of their things. So I'm still a Presbyterian elder, even though I haven't been in Presbyterian church for 20-odd years. Um, the Baptists. Bruce Godden went to the oldest Baptist church in Australia. What did he find? A woman preacher. Um, as I've mentioned, in our church, we've got many women involved in ministry. So not only beyond church, but within church, things are changing. If we look beyond church, and I spoke about the Spirit of God being abroad in the world and, and changing people's hearts and minds, think about this. Margaret Thatcher, very important leader for Britain. Ironically, even though she was highly conservative, she actually began the end of coal by shutting down a whole lot of coal mines. Um, Angela Merkel, 18, year, 18 years, I think, as Chancellor of Germany. Julia Gillard, our own Prime Minister, who passed from the position of a minority government more legislation in her term of office than any other Prime Minister has ever done. She was a good negotiator. Jacinda Ardern in, England, in uh, New Zealand, very popular um, woman leader. So beyond the church and within the church, all these things are starting to change. Now, for some people, they'll say, well, we're not going to become like the world. We're not going to become like those guys out there because they've, they've just dropped off. They're, they're, we're just conforming to that sort of stuff. That's, that's a bad idea. But I don't think it is like that. I think God, in various ways, in various groups of people, is changing our mind about particularly the position of women. And there's good reason for this. If you think about uh, incidents of domestic violence in Australia, right? one in four women are abused by their partners, and the partners are mainly male. This is, this is an important issue. And it's important that men, if they're going to exercise their, exercise their headship properly, you know what? They've got to be like Jesus. Not like the average bloke. They've got to be like Jesus. That's the model that we're asked to follow. And in fact, in terms of all our relationships, every one of our relationships, the model is not man and woman in the Bible. The model is the Trinity and the way the Trinity interact in love and grace and service happily. That's the model for relationship, not any kind of human model. So... For me, headship and leadership are not the same thing at all. I think that men can exercise their proper headship, meaning responsibility for their family, spiritual responsibility, responsibility in the church, 
without being threatened by various aspects of leadership that women might take on. I think uh, women can and do fulfil leadership roles without threatening male headship. And, um, well, Dorothy and I have seemed to manage that. And as I look around the church, you know, like one of the arguments against women um, dominating or women uh, taking roles of leadership is that they're unreliable or that they're unsubmitted or something like that. Now, even though you ladies aren't wearing um, head dressings and hats and scarves and things like that, I don't actually see a whole lot of lack of submission amongst the women in our church. I don't. Maybe that's because you're a new creation. Maybe because you've grown. Maybe because Jesus has softened your heart. I don't know what it is, but I just don't see a whole lot of rabid women out to take control of our church. Or in any church. And in all the Christians I've known, that's never been the case. What I see is submitted godly women. That's what I see. And I see them working in the churches. I see them, in some senses, uh, dominating the church just by numbers. There's more women Christians than there are men Christians. There's more women churchgoers than there are men uh, churchgoers, etc. So I see that the gospel is essentially about God saving humanity from the curse of the disobedience of God and setting us free to be part of the glorious liberty of the children of God. And to live free from the bondage of sin, shame, guilt, death. And basically, I've got no problem with the way um, women serve in the church. I don't see that we necessarily have to have a whole lot of limitations on it. I would probably think that uh, in our particular church we'll probably stay with male pastors. But if we do have a gifted woman come to speak to us, what I ask is, and it's a simple thing, have the courtesy to come and listen to what she says. Let's just find out what she says. Maybe she's got something to offer but if we don't agree with her, don't feel like she's somehow got authority over you or she's going to boss you around. I'm not bossing you around either. I'm trying to convince you through an argument, but it's not as if the preacher dominates the congregation to the extent that you all have to agree with me, whether it's a man or a woman. I listen to sermons. I think, yeah, it's a pretty good point. Uh, I didn't like that much. <laughs> so I do it. And I bet you did the same. I hope you do. Because you're supposed to be testing the spirits. You're supposed to be checking what people like me say to you from the scriptures. That's what you're meant to be doing. I don't want you to agree with everything I say. But I do want you to come back at me, if you disagree with me, with scriptural argument and scriptural principle and show me where I'm wrong. And for that purpose, we're going to have our little discussion at the end of the service. I've gone long enough now, and I'd like to close by reading from 1 Thessalonians 5. I can't even remember why I wanted to do that, but I thought it was a good idea at some point. This is where I miss my iPad. 
Okay. 16.22. Right. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and make your spirit and soul and body to be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he, is, and he will bring it to pass. Thank you very much.